Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. On this episode of The Breakdown, we're going to be taking a look at all of the recent changes to AISH, that's Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped, that were announced and then unannounced and then reannounced. Uh, we're also going to be taking a look at the Premier's response to the throne speech and some of the kooky things that he had to say in his response. Uh, we've got a couple of other topics that we're going to be taking a look at, and we're sitting down with Ward 3 City Councillor Jody Gondek. So we've got a full episode for you today. It's time for the breakdown. In Alberta, there's certain topics that are just considered to be third rails of politics. One of those, for example, could be very easily considered to be a provincial sales tax. Another one, though, would be a program called AISH. For those of you that aren't familiar, AISH stands for Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped. And effectively what it is, is it's a program to make sure that people who suffer from disabilities that prevent them from being able to work. And it's worth noting, these are disabilities that have been diagnosed by a doctor. So a physician has said these people won't be able to function in the workplace enough to make ends meet, that's what AISH is for. Now, AISH has had a really hard time since the last provincial election. One of the first things that happened, Premier Jason Kenney, during the election campaign, made a promise that AISH would remain indexed to inflation. It took less than a year, though, for him to walk back that promise and de-index AISH. So now the amount that people get on AISH no longer goes up with inflation. It just stays the same until the government at some point decides to increase it if they ever do. Well, another bombshell dropped for Ace just a couple of weeks ago. On Friday, September 11th, multiple news organizations, mostly post-media, broke the news that Ace was one of the programs that was being looked at by the UCP government for cuts. Now, obviously, breaking that kind of a news on a Friday has some pretty serious impact for the people who rely on those programs. And the Minister of Community and Social Services, Rajan Sani, was fairly quick to put up a Facebook post in response to that news. But it wasn't exactly comforting because it did say that H as a program has grown significantly over the last couple of years, although that's mostly in response to the fact that for many, many years, H was considered to be almost inaccessible because of the administrative burden that was placed in front of it. This was something that the Auditor General had actually called the government out back out in 2015. So since those programs have been made more accessible for people to access who do have disabilities, there have been more people who have been able to get on AISH. Um, So there has been growth in the program, but for a very, very good and simple reason. Uh, The minister, though, decided to put out a statement saying that because of the growth of the program, they were looking at efficiencies and ways to find uh, to try to make the program more sustainable over the long term. Now it's a bit of a mixed message so people got really really upset. So with the amount of public outcry that occurred on the Friday and continued into the Saturday it makes a lot of sense that Minister Sani had to respond with yet another Facebook post and in this Facebook post she tried to take a little bit more of a comforting tone explaining that under no circumstances would financial supports be cut. Now that wording is very, very particular and it's very important for what we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. The other thing that the minister did was she asked people on AISH to trust her, which is a bold move considering what the premier had to say at a news conference just a few short days later. At a news conference on September 15th, Premier Jason Kenney was asked for his thoughts on the AISH program and whether or not there was anything that he could say to put a little peace of mind for the people who were so concerned about it. Here's that. Here's his response. To look at very seriously is the fact that the number of people qualifying for... Initially, AISH was a program designed for the severely handicapped. Um, but the population of people qualifying has been growing uh, Uh, far, far faster than the overall population. And so they have to look at issues like that. What are the uh, criteria? Um, How do we define severely uh, handicapped uh, in this day and age? So those are the kinds of issues that they're looking at. Are you willing to say any more to put, there's 70,000 people who rely on this program, are you willing to say more to put their minds at ease about whether they could be losing their benefits within the next year? Um, People, as, as long as they qualify, won't be losing benefits. 
So just to sort of recap all of that, on the Friday, there were news that there were going to be cuts to Aish. On the Friday, later on in the day, the Ministry of Community and Social Services said that there would potentially be efficiencies explored. But on the Saturday, she walked back and said there would be no cuts to the financial supports that Aish offers disabled Albertans. But then at this press conference, the Premier of Alberta somewhat contradicted all of that and said, well, there wouldn't necessarily be any cuts to the amount that people on Aish receive. They were looking at ways to cut the number of people who are going to be on Aish, which is an incredibly disingenuous play of words, and it forces a lot of stress onto the disabled community. But it got worse from there, because shortly after that press conference, the issues manager for the Premier of Alberta tweeted out a tweet where he made it clear that the areas that the UCP are looking at to cut are not people who are suffering from physical disabilities, but rather mental disabilities. It's really important to be clear that a mental disability can be absolutely just as debilitating as a physical disability, sometimes even more so, depending on the type of disability that we're talking about. So it should be really alarming to Albertans that the UCP government has decided that the people that they're going to target for savings, even though those savings are going to be absolutely minimal, are some of the people in Alberta who require the most help and assistance. And for the UCP government to announce that they're going to be making these changes, potentially, without any sort of concrete action, puts an incredible amount of stress on people who are already struggling to get through just day-to-day life because now they've got an axe hanging over their heads and they don't know whether or not they're going to be one of the people that are cut from the program or whether or not they're going to be allowed to stay. This is not how Albertans treat each other and it's certainly not how Albertans support each other. The bottom line is that Albertans take care of each other and for the Premier and for the UCP to target this program that supports the most vulnerable Albertans that there are is absolutely reprehensible. It's becoming increasingly clear that there's a growing conversation around the world about energy and how the world is going to not only use energy, but how they're going to be getting energy. Uh, There's been lots of red flags going on for quite some time that there is a major sea change coming, and that's probably not a bad thing given the impact of climate change and how much climate change stands to impact people all around the world. Now, in order to have this conversation, there's a couple of facts that we need to get out of the way. So one of the things that we keep hearing in the province of Alberta is how critical oil and gas revenues are to providing Albertans uh, revenue. The bottom line, though, is that number has been dropping for quite some time. Currently, oil and gas royalties only account for about 16% of the revenue that the province gets. To put that in context, the Alberta government gets more revenue from students' tuition than it does oil and gas. So when we're talking about what industries we should be maybe investing in, that's part of the conversation that the government hasn't done a very good job of bringing into context. But with that as well, we're also starting to see some major changes from some of the biggest players in oil and gas around the world. A little while ago, BP announced that they were going to be cutting uh, their production of oil and gas by 40% by 2030. And they're doing this because they believe that the world will have reached peak oil sometime not in the 2050s, not in the 2060s, but in the 2020s. Which means that one of the biggest players in oil and gas expects their market to peak in just the next couple of years. Now, Shell has also followed suit with a recent announcement that they're going to be cutting their production and moving towards more renewable energy sources, and they're doing the same cut by 40%. So when the biggest players in the industry are starting to say, look, this is going to not be working for us for very much longer, it's absolutely incumbent on governments who are supposed to be looking out for the best interests of Albertans to be paying attention to that. But that's not what the UCP has been doing. Nowhere was this disconnect more obvious than in Jason Kenney's response to the throne speech. Now, to be clear, 
the throne speech was not what a lot of people were hoping for. Going into the throne speech, there were a lot of conversations around things like universal basic income for people and, and pharmacare for people. And a lot of those promises were vaguely referred to, but not specifically referred to. So as throne speeches go, it's pretty standard stuff, but it certainly doesn't do a whole lot to move things forward. And it's true that while the throne speech did refer to energy quite a bit, Alberta didn't specifically get name dropped. And we know by now that if Jason Kenney doesn't see Alberta name dropped, he gets grumpy real fast. And he definitely did in his reaction to the throne speech. Now, there's a couple of things that he said in his throne speech that we want to address. But before we do, we just want to play this little video for you. Uh, well, first of all, uh, the transportation sector is not where most oil is consumed. Secondly, if you really think that people, the billion people in India who desperately want to move to a higher standard of living are all going to be driving Teslas uh, 15 years from now, then you're disconnected from reality. Uh, that is to say, there are billions of people around the world living in extreme energy poverty. They don't have the luxury of um, repeating all of these kind of California-style pieties. They, 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 they want to stop burning cow dung. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things that the Premier said in that video that are deeply problematic at best. But to start with, there's a couple of basic facts that we need to get out of the way. So first of all, in part of his response, Jason Kenney said that uh, the vast majority of oil production doesn't go to towards transportation fuel. But that's false. Uh, it's simply not true. Now, ignoring the problematic racial overtones that were included in his statement, there's also some very basic facts that he got wrong. So, first of all, when he's talking about people in India and how they're choosing to get around with transportation and how they won't be able to afford Teslas, he's probably right. That's because they don't use Teslas or really cars for the vast majority of their transportation in India. They use something called wheelers, which are three-wheeled kind of motorcycles. Um, but... The government of India has mandated that by 2030, all of those need to be converted to electric. And that's huge because they account for 70% of the vehicles that are on the road in India, and they account for 30% of all of the carbon emissions that come out of India. So by transitioning those vehicles to electric, they're going to have a huge impact on their overall carbon footprint as a country. To say nothing of the fact that they've also announced significant incentives, $4.something billion, in order to transition people to electric vehicles. But there's an even bigger point that needs to be addressed with Jason Kenney's whole argument about third world countries are going to third world and we need to make sure that we're providing their energy. According to the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, the amount of energy that Alberta and Canada ship to countries other than the United States is 1%. 1% of our energy production goes towards other countries other than the United States. Now, what that means is that all of these other countries are currently getting supply from other places. And when you consider the fact that the product that comes out of the oil sands is a lower-grade product that what a lot of people can get out of different parts of the world that requires more refining, why would any of these countries, who Jason Kenney has presented as being so financially strapped, choose to go with a more expensive product that takes more time and more effort to refine when they can get a better product that's cheaper from their existing supply chain. It doesn't make any sense. And that's what should really alarm Albertans. Because either Jason Kenney doesn't know these basic facts that even Vivian Krauss could find with a Google search, or he's choosing to misrepresent them to Albertans for political means. I'm not sure which one's scarier. Alberta has been dealing with the opioid crisis for years now, and it's cost a lot of Albertans their lives. One of the measures that has been taken to try to prevent Albertans from dying from opioid addiction has been the implementation of supervised consumption sites. Now, unfortunately, one of the supervised consumption sites in Alberta, which was down south in Lethbridge, was, that was run by an organization called Arches, had quite a bit of a bumpy start. For a couple of years, there were mismanagement of funds as well as mismanagement of staff, and all of that came out in a report in July. 
Now, it's important to realize that that report was leaked. It was supposed to be an internal report. And since that report came out, the management of Arches had made a lot of changes in order to make sure the kind of problems that they were having wouldn't happen again. Nonetheless, the UCP government decided that the best way to deal with the problem was to simply defund the supervised consumption site in Lethbridge. Now, this is a really short-sighted and dangerous thing for the province to do, especially with the recent news that Alberta has had its worst quarter since we started recording numbers of opioid deaths, uh, with over 300 Albertans dying in the last three months from opioid overdoses. It's really important to be clear. There's a lot of miscommunication and misinterpretations about what supervised consumption sites do. But as we've talked about in previous episodes, supervised consumption sites accomplish a couple of really important goals. First of all, they keep people alive. You can't send somebody who's dead to rehab and help them with their addiction. But people have to be at a place where they're ready to accept that help. So supervised consumption sites keep them alive and bridge that gap to some degree. It's also important to realize that supervised consumption sites actually have a fairly respectable rate of getting people into treatment. So it's not that a supervised consumption site only exists to give people a place to use uh, illicit drugs. It also helps to redirect them away from their addiction. Finally, one of the other things that's really important to realize about supervised consumption sites is the fact that when we're talking about needle debris, supervised consumption sites have a net negative impact on needle debris, which is to say supervised consumption sites pick up more needles from the community than they actually hand out. So they actually help to make sure that there aren't dangerous needles kicking around the community and in the areas around the supervised consumption sites. But none of that seems to matter to the UCP because they've made it clear that to them, supervised consumption sites are just enabling addicts and they're not doing anything to bridge the problem. But like we just said, the opposite's true. So again, we find ourselves asking ourselves the question, What is it about supervised consumption sites that the UCP can't get behind? Because there's evidence that supports it, there's data that supports it, and most importantly, there are Albertans who are still alive because of supervised consumption sites. One of the conversations that we've been having on the show, if you've been paying attention, has been the conversation around systemic racism and racism in Alberta. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some really horrifying racist events, whether or not it's the protests that happened up in Red Deer where anti-racism protesters were actually assaulted, whether it's the verbal abuse that we've seen on the Calgary Sea Train recently. There's no shortage of examples. So we wanted to sit down with somebody and have a conversation about what the city of Calgary is doing and how they're looking at the problems that cause racism. So to do that, we sat down with City of Calgary Councillor for Ward 3, Jody Gondek. Here's that interview. For our interview segment on this episode of The Breakdown, we are extremely fortunate to be joined by none other than Ward 3 Councillor Jody Gondek. So Jody, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again today. Thanks for having me on, Nate. Got a bunch of different things that we want to kind of pick your brains on. Um, the first one, though, is probably one of the higher profile issues that has been facing uh, City Council, and that has to do with the whole conversation that Calgary is having right now around the topic of uh, racism. So, right. so both personal racism as well as systemic racism. Uh, and we've certainly seen some interesting examples pop up in, in social media from some of the higher levels of government in our province. Uh, so I wanted to, to sort of to go through that whole conversation with you, and then there's a bunch of other stuff I want to talk about after. Sure. So to start with, um, how would you define systemic racism? It's a really good question, and it's one that a lot of people are struggling with right now. I think the misconception is that um, people who are racist are creating these systems that we are in. And that's not necessarily what systemic racism means. It means that the systems that were created through colonialism are inherently racist because of the times in which they were created. And if you don't unpack how those systems came to be and how they hold people back and how they have inherent bias, then you're not really getting to the root of the problem. So you can implement different policies all you want to, but if the system is set up to ensure that certain people will never succeed, 
that's the problem. So systemic racism is about looking at how the systems were built. Do they still work for our needs right now in a progressive society? And how do we make that change happen? It's heavy, heavy work. And that's why people don't always want to engage. It's okay. so big and it's going to be so hard to change, but that doesn't mean you don't do it. Is there, I, I feel like I already know the answer to this question, but I'll, I'll ask it. Is there, are there any quick fixes to addressing systemic racism? I don't know that any quick fixes would create the type of lasting impact that we need. Um, I would say we need more people from different backgrounds, formerly marginalized communities, um, to step up and really speak what it is that, that they've experienced in a safe way, obviously, and tell us what it is that we need to do that's different. I had a very interesting exchange on Twitter the other day with an amazing community volunteer named Nathan, who was questioning whether Calgary Planning Commission was actually made up of the right people and was it in fact a systemic problem where the amount of time that's needed to do that role was preventing people who are marginalized from participating? It was a really interesting question. Um, I wrote back and said, you know, it is an extremely time consuming job, but the, the jump to point of only people with privilege will ever take this position on because they don't have obligations outside of this is false. Most of the commissioners I know have full-time jobs. They've got families at home. There's other things they're pursuing. A couple of them are pursuing master's degrees. Um, I did my PhD while I was on commission. We just care a lot, like a lot. To invest that much time every two weeks into making sure city building is done right on top of all of your other obligations, you need to be someone that cares a lot about this stuff. And you don't get any kind of monetary reward. It is really difficult to do. But it's smart to point out that would some sort of compensation or would a better balance of timing of those meetings draw in more people that are different? So really good questions to ask. Um, and I would say we need to go back to some of the folks that were different on commission and say, did you ever feel like you weren't being heard? Did you ever feel like your voice was being sidelined? What can we do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Okay. So, I think things like that will help us address it. In response to, I, I assume in response to, the, a lot of the public outcry that we saw around the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, yep. the city of Calgary held some public forums. Is it fair to call them that? Yeah. Okay. Um, and those public forums were certainly challenging to watch because so many people showed up and had so many absolutely heartbreaking stories of, of personal racism that they experienced. I'm, I'm curious, are you aware of any actions that the city has taken to address some of the concerns that were, were brought forward? So I know that um, we are striking the anti-racism committee in uh, late October. There's applications that have been received, so I think that committee is um, going to be very important in making sure the public is participating and helping us make that big systemic shift. I know the HR department has been engaging with the diversity and inclusion manager, um, and it, it, her name's Luminita. She's a wonderful person who challenges us all the time on our unconscious bias. So there are a lot of training opportunities that are being offered. There's a lot of um, changes that are being proposed to performance management systems. But I think ultimately it's accountability from each individual. So okay. there was things that I heard during that hearing that bothered me in terms of things that the city had done. And so I took it upon myself to reach out to those individuals. Um, I've had several emails from people who participated in those hearings who said, you know, I came and spoke. You heard what I had to say. I want to have a deeper conversation. I'm up for that. I have no problem with that. That's why I was elected, is to listen to people and help make the types of changes that'll make our city better and stronger. So there's a lot of work to do. Um, I don't know that we got that hearing process right. That sounds very critical. I think my colleagues who set up that structure were absolutely trying to do the right thing in a timely way. But you know, as someone who's been through some experiences with racism, it's hard to tell your story, even privately, to do it so openly and publicly, you're opening up wounds. 
And you know, Marilyn North Pagan, who is a commissioner on the police commission, she said this very eloquently. She goes, you know, you did not have a lot of indigenous representation at those hearings because we've told our stories. We've done it a lot of times. You've got a truth and Recon reconciliation report. You've got the murdered and missing indigenous women report. How many more times do you want us to come and open our wounds? It's powerful stuff. Well, that's, that, that kind of pivots into one of the other pieces of the conversation that I wanted to get into. It seems like uh, a lot of the conversation has been focused on very specific demographics. Um, and I'm, I'm curious for, for your perspective. Is the conversation best served by focusing on specific demographics or is it best served focusing on the, the broader things that contribute to, to racism and systemic racism or does the solution have to, to be some sort of hybrid of both? It's got to be a hybrid of both, okay. right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like if you take an example of a kid in school who's got a learning disorder, right, and is getting picked on by other kids, you've got two issues to deal with. You've got the issue of bullying, and you've got the issue of this kid who needs some support with the learning disorder, right? So one is extremely focused on the, the issue for the child. The other is focused on the environment within which that child has to operate and navigate. So if we're looking at racism, it's absolutely important to understand that different groups are experiencing different things. And, you know, it's the same with um, members of the LGBTQ community. Their experiences are not going to be the same as those of racialized people, mm -hmm. but there's similarities. So if you look at the system overall and you see that we have a lot of work to do in terms of inclusion, that's a big job. But you have to listen to the stories of the people who have been through it to understand how those personal tales that they've told tell a bigger story about the system. So it's got to be a combination of the two. Okay. What direction do you see things going over the next six months to a year with the City of Calgary in regards to uh, addressing some of these concerns? I think Council has made a commitment to ensure that some of the, um, the practices and policies that we need to change are done quickly. I know that I've had um, several conversations with Human Resources and with the City Manager. They're actively working on making those changes happen. Um, a good example is the recruitment process for our boards, committees, and commissions that we've undergone this fall. Um, my question was, what did we learn from those hearings that will allow our diversity, inclusion, and equity team to make our interview processes stronger? Are we anonymizing resumes? Are we um, trying to do some other blind process that doesn't immediately bias an individual who has applied for whatever reason? So they're looking at all of that stuff, they're taking it seriously, and I know action's being taken. Okay. Now, you have some experience with the Calgary Police Commission. Yes. Um, just for our, our audience of two people, could you, could you explain what your experience with the Calgary Police Commission is? Yeah, so when I became a counselor in um, October of 2017, that month is when we do the organizational meeting where we appoint uh, citizens of Calgary to different boards, committees, and commissions, and we as a council also take on various roles on standing policy committees and other boards and commissions. So I had let my name stand for police commission, and so I've been serving there since November 2017, okay. almost three years now. Okay. One of the big catchphrases that we've seen used uh, <clears throat> and rallying cries is probably a better way to describe it, is the whole idea of defunding the police. Right. Um, now, as, as we've learned through our own little journey on the show exploring uh, this issue uh, of systemic racism is that defunding the police means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and so it's, it's a very difficult concept, I think, for, for people to address, particularly in a province like Alberta, where some of the arguments for defunding the police are moving money away from policing to mental health supports that would normally be the purview of the province. Yeah. Um, what's your sort of reaction when somebody says to you, we need to defund the police? It's been a very weighty conversation. Um, for anybody that watched the meeting between Calgary City Council, the Calgary Police Commission and Calgary Police Service, I think it was pretty clear that members of council aren't even on the same page with what systemic racism means and what the implications are in a policing organization. I think it was incredibly bold of the Calgary Police Association, 
um, the Calgary Police Service and the Calgary Police Commission, along with retired members of the service, to issue a joint statement back in July saying we accept that systemic racism exists and we've got to do better and we've got to tackle the issues. So with that acknowledgement, you've made your statement and now it's time to do something about it. So the things that the Calgary Police Commission is working with the Calgary Police Service on is identifying what types of issues exist and ensuring that the system is changed in a way to make it more inclusive, to make sure there's equity and diversity in a meaningful way. So that's the work that needs to be done. But if you can't even accept at the beginning that systemic racism is a thing that exists in virtually every institution and organization globally, then you've got a problem. Thankfully, most of council agreed that systemic racism is, is a thing, and the police organizations agreed as well. That doesn't mean that it's an inherently racist organization. Mm -hmm. That means there are systems and policies in place that don't allow it to be as inclusive as it should. That's the type of stuff we need to tear down. Okay. The other thing that gets brought up too is it's just some bad apples. You can't have those conversations anymore. A bad apple is not what you call a member of the service who has betrayed every other member by acting badly and by violating a code of ethics. That's a disservice to every member of the police service who goes to work every day to do good and to serve Calgarians. And I think the membership would agree with those of us that want to hold those unethical people accountable that that needs to be rooted out and removed from the service. You cannot have a membership that is doing great work if a few members are allowed to behave inappropriately with a weapon in their hand and use their power and authority in a way that it was not intended. Mm -hmm. So this whole bad apples argument doesn't work anymore. You've got to talk about people's actions in the context that they're providing service to Calgarians. One of the, the, the challenges I think is that, that a lot of people are looking for a pathway. They want mm -hmm. to see this is the step that we need to do and when we've done this we need to do this and when we've done this we need to do this. Do you think something like that exists for the, the police? If we think that we're going to solve systemic racism anywhere through a linear process, we're dreaming. Okay. It's not a linear process, it's too complicated. There's too many systems and cogs and wheels that are integrated that need to be, like, you know, you need to throw a wrench into something before you can figure out why it wasn't working. And then to remove that wrench is a complicated process as well. And do you want those cogs all to fit together the way they used to? This is going to be an incredibly difficult endeavor. And we can't call it something that's linear that says, if you do step one, you'll get to step two and then step three. I guarantee we're going to try step one, fall backwards, get to step one again, probably fall backwards again, take a couple of steps and go back. This is not going to be easy. I remember saying, buckle up. This is going to be really hard and heavy work. And you know, to your, to your question about, is it defunding or defending the police or is it all cops are bad versus back the blue. It's none of those. If we start looking at polarizing extremes and if we start thinking that one thing versus the other is what we have to choose, we will not get this right. Mm -hmm. When people talk about defunding the police, what I would like to see is the police organizations having a good look at their structure and how they deliver their service. And for them to be able to come back and say, a traditional policing model would see us delivering these services in this manner and these are the resources we would need. Since however long ago, 1976 as example, um, we have been tasked with having school resource officers as well. Very recently, we've also tasked the police with mental health calls. I want them to be able to break down the service calls that they're doing that are not necessarily within the mandate of a police service. Then we can talk about how you move that resourcing into a place that's better suited to meet the needs of the citizenry. That to me isn't defunding, that is making sure the funding is coming from the right source and going to the right service delivery model. So I have a problem with these polar opposites that we love to get into. For People me, like to present it as very binary. They do, it's not binary. Work. It's not defund versus defend, it's ensuring that the right service delivery model is being executed by the right people. So with that being said, one of the things that I've been really intrigued by uh, is the, the PAC team. Um, now it's a bit of an interesting one because for 
and please correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but my understanding of the PAC team is that it's a, a coordinated effort between the Calgary Police as well as Alberta Health Services who provide a mental health nurse. Uh, and they go out and they address um, mental health issues in certain vulnerable subsets. Uh, that to me looks like an amazing program and a great way to address a lot of the concerns that we're seeing people bring up, uh, especially when we're talking about the mental health checks. Um, but unless I'm mistaken, a model like that would also require buy-in from the province. Yeah. How much support have you seen from the provincial government in regards to um, moving things like that forward? You know, it's, um, it's an interesting concept to talk about how our jurisdictional challenges make for poor service delivery. So when you look at the fact that police officers are required to be on a mental health call, and if they have to take that individual in for care, they're off the street. Yep. So you've lost a couple of officers off their beat to go and be with someone who needs to get admitted for their own welfare. And you know, it's a tragic situation for everyone involved. So how do you make it better? Well, you need to work together in tandem with the Ministry of Health. Um, the PAC team is a really good example of what we're doing well together. The DOPE team is another good example. SOURCE downtown is a, is a multi-agency initiative to let people get the help they need in a one-stop manner. But we're just, our systems do not work well together. So we absolutely need the support of the provincial government. I would say we need the, the support of the federal government as well. A lot of these issues are related to people not having a job and not having a home. So if Housing First is really the model we believe in and all good things will come after someone has a decent home and then make sure they have a decent income, that's three orders of government having to work together and we are notoriously bad at that. We, we saw that recently and we're still kind of seeing it unfold <clears throat> to some degree with the whole conversation about the provincial EMS dispatch. Yes. So for people who haven't been following the, the provincial EMS dispatch, oh, let's call it a conversation, mm -hmm. um, can you sort of just break down where we are now and how did we get here? Well, um, when EMS dispatch was removed from the fold of fire police and EMS being together, um, and it went provincial, that was, um, that was a bit of a kerfuffle and not necessarily something that everyone wanted to see, but it happened, it's history. You know, I'm not gonna hash that open again. But what happened after that is that 911 dispatch in Calgary became an integrated model. And so that integrated model made sure that EMS, fire and police were being dispatched in a coordinated, meaningful way to ensure that whatever the call was, the individual was getting the care from the right party. Okay. And if one party couldn't show up quickly enough, the other one would step in and uh, take whatever intervention was needed until whoever needed to be there could get there. So when that responsibility for dispatch was given to Calgary, we took it on and we excelled. Our call center is one of a few that are globally recognized for our integrated response. We are exceeding expectations in terms of answering calls and doing the dispatch. It's working really well. It's, a, it's an exceptional model. It's been recognized. Why would you dismantle that? And the argument is, well, we're going to dispatch differently. We're going to coordinate the dispatch provincially like we have been doing in other jurisdictions. We just need to move everybody to that model now. Well, if you've given a responsibility to someone to be a steward for a strong model and they've delivered on it, why would you penalize them by taking that service away from them? Why would you penalize Calgarians by taking that service away from our dispatch center? Was there any sort of a defined contract term for how long Calgary was going to be yep. doing the dispatching? It was supposed to extend another year and it's not going to. The, the contract is being truncated. So it's, a very, it's very strange to me that this is what the province has chosen to focus on when, you know, I mean, I guess I'll say anecdotally because I don't have a report in front of me, but from any paramedic I've spoken to and from any frontline emergency response worker I've spoken to, the real problem in Calgary is a shorter, shortage of ambulances. Okay. So why wouldn't we focus on that? So when you say shortage of ambulances, what, what sort of anecdotal stories are you, are you hearing? 
I'm hearing stories of where, um, you know, a Calgarian has uh, a need that requires EMS and the ambulances are coming from places like Strathmore, um, from Cochrane, from Airdrie. And I mean, it's nice to have a regional model that works together, but it also tells me that Calgary has an ambulance shortage. So that's what I would like to be talking to the province about. I don't know how they decided to prioritize dispatch, which was working perfectly fine, instead of talking about the real issue, which is, you know, and I, I think they're called red light calls. I'm not even sure, or red alerts, something like that. The terminology escapes me right now, but it's red, it's serious. We've got a shortage of ambulances. That's the conversation we should be having. From talking to Calgarians, do you think Calgarians are more concerned with where the dispatch center is located or, or whether or not an ambulance uh, is showing up to their houses? Um, when my dad passed away, it was unexpected and horrifying. And the most important thing was to get EMS to the house quickly. I didn't really care where that dispatch was coming from, but what I did care about was that it was a quick response. And as a Calgarian, I know that we offer top-notch service, that dispatch is being done well. And if you talk to members of the fire department and you talk to members of the police service and you talk to EMS on the ground in Calgary, they'll tell you they're very happy with the model because they work together. The most recent incident we had on 22X, where there were fatalities, mm -hmm. The reason that we were able to act quickly is because the response was coordinated. There was enough people doing enough things to shut down the roadway to allow stars to land and take people out of that situation. That's the type of coordinated response that saves lives. And if it's being done well, why would you change it? It certainly seems like there are some dissonant priorities between what the municipal government's looking at for uh, and what they're trying to accomplish and what the provincial government's trying to, to accomplish. How would you, and, and we've just seen a, a significant change in who's sort of managing those relationships with the, the recent cabinet shuffle, how would you characterize the, the relationship between municipal governments and the provincial government up until this most recent cabinet shuffle? Because we haven't really had a chance to see how the new minister is going to do her job. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am... Uh... I am a little bit positive about the new minister, uh, Minister Allard. Yeah. Um, she was able to speak to members of the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association um, on Friday of the conference that we had, and her message was extremely collaborative. Her message was about making sure that cities are successful so our province can be successful. Um, she was very, she embraced this idea of working together, and, and I think people were very happy to hear that. We have not had that. We've had this sort of regime of, I'm the new sheriff in town, I tell you what you do, and if you don't like it, that's too bad. Can't work like that. You know, if, if you're at the provincial level, you are not on the ground in the city experiencing the things that are going on. And I certainly don't expect you to hold a portfolio where you understand land use planning. That's, that's minutia. That's the stuff we're supposed to do. We do it well but you've got to work with us to understand how we best deliver on those models so that our cities are growing in a way that's sustainable and the service we're providing to our Calgarians um, is something that they need and it's something that's strongly supported by all orders of government. You can't do that if you don't work together. So I'm happy to see that there's a move towards collaboration. I think we need a lot more of it. Okay. Going with that whole sort of theme of the, the provincial government working with the municipal government, um, given that the city of Calgary is, is taking some pretty significant strides to address systemic racism, there seems to be something of a disconnect between the priorities and value sets between the provincial government and the, the, the municipal government. We've, we've seen the, mun the municipal city of Calgary very much acknowledging the systemic racism issues. We talked about the police um, looking at all kinds of different ways to make changes to make sure that they're addressing those. We've certainly seen it with other uh, business groups within the city of, city of Calgary. Um, but on the other hand, uh, when it comes to addressing issues of inequity and inequality, um, one of the driving theories behind that is the idea that there are certain factors that contribute to people experiencing potentially more challenges or oppression or racism or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. Um, traditionally, that theory has been called intersectional. 
Um, we have a, a premier who just called intersectional theory kooky mm -hmm. uh, and academic. Do you have any concerns about continuing to move the needle forward when we have a provincial leader who's sending the message to Albertans? And some of these Albertans are likely people who need to hear this message more than anybody else. Um, do you have any concerns about him positioning it with that kind of rhetoric? I'm but always concerned um, when a message comes from leadership that's a little bit tone deaf to what's happening in society. And I also think that this partisan divide we have is leading to some remarks being made that are not good for Calgarians or Albertans or Canadians, frankly. So if you don't like the throne speech, which frankly I didn't care much for, just seemed like a whole lot of the same mm -hmm. and a whole lot of pretty words without a lot of action attached to it, thrilled about childcare. I will say that, but everything else is stuff we've heard before. And I didn't need the Governor General and then the Prime Minister to both repeat the same thing. Like, mm -hmm. enough. But if you don't like the party in power federally, and you're going to attack their words, at least choose the ones that, you know, you should be attacking. If you didn't hear Alberta or energy enough in the speech, great, talk about it. Why go after intersectionality? That is literally the thing that makes us understand that compounding factors make it difficult for some people to get ahead. And in reverse, sometimes those compounding factors add to the privilege that one party has. So if you're going to play partisan politics and attack a speech, choose the pieces of it that you need to. Why didn't we go after the fact that neither the federal nor the provincial government are talking about what's critical? We are really good at energy production in Alberta. We have progressed over time. We have created models that are more sustainable. We are leaders in energy production globally. We do not have a lot of the human rights violations that other nations have. Why don't we talk about the fact that we can create more jobs in this province, in this city, by allowing us to progress forward into a cleaner future? Those are the conversations I want to have. I would like the federal government to step out of Ontario for five seconds and understand what we do out here. And I would like our provincial government to understand that dwelling in the past, the glory days of oil and gas, the way it was, is not going to move us into the future. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the kind of talent that we're trying to attract and the people that we want to come and work here, if they're hearing a message that, you know, their nation is categorized as dung burning, I don't know that that's exactly the message that we want. What I found particularly interesting was the Premier made a comment about how people that are trying to get out of um, positions of poverty, I'm paraphrasing here, um, desperate circumstances in India are not worried about driving Teslas. What they're worried about is having a reliable energy source that's not dung. I found it very interesting that at 5.57 a.m., routers picked up that uh, India made an announcement that $4.6 billion was being invested into firms that would make batteries to allow for them to create electric fleets. Mm -hmm. The Prime Minister actually said that by 2030, he wants to reduce India's reliance on oil by $40 billion. I think sometimes you need to think about what you're saying in a global context. It was a very strange argument for the, the Premier to make, to me, uh, if for no other reason than if you take a look at who Canada exports our oil to, literally 99% of it, and that's according to CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, 99% uh, of it goes to the States. Only 1% of what Canada produces goes other places. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we would somehow be able to create uh, a new opportunity for Alberta and energy when we're still dealing with the, the production issues that we're, we're dealing with yeah. um, in India and that the suppliers who are currently supplying India would just quietly get out of Alberta's way uh, struck me as, as very strange, I'll say. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's things that are obvious. We need to be able to move Canadian-produced oil and gas to the coast. We need to be able to get our oil to the places where we can ship it out mm -hmm. and we can have strong exports. That's a fact. I think it's important to keep reiterating that. But I think at the same time, we need to talk about while that is an immediate circumstance 
that we need to address. The future involves us evolving past that type of production into a new type of production that the world is going to embrace. So we can be immediate and forward thinking at the same time. I just, I don't hear that messaging anymore. It's always, it's this argument about oil and gas needs to come back. We need to have another boom. That's not it. That's not the end of the sentence. We do need to focus on our energy sector by the federal government, because frankly, I believe they've been overlooking us for quite some time. But at the same time, we need to demonstrate that we're willing to move forward. And I firmly believe that the major corporations that chose to locate in this city that are now talking about evolving their energy production model are the ones that are going to lead us into that clean economy. It is not a dirty phrase to say that we want to move to a clean economy. It's our future. Well, especially given the catastrophic <laughs> nature of, of climate change that, that's, that's being predicted, I think it's safe to say that if we don't start to make some transitions, uh, and I, I think you're right, Alberta does have the opportunity to be a leader on that if we choose to be. Mm -hmm. um, I'm One of the things that I'm currently trying to figure out is how we're going to do that when we have a, a premier who, A, doesn't seem to know what's going on in India, uh, B, he said that the vast majority of the petroleum products that we produce doesn't go towards fuel, but the vast majority of it does go towards fuel. Um, I, I have concerns about how we're going to move forward when we have a, a premier who seems to have a casual relationship with facts. My biggest struggle has been and continues to be the rhetoric that we find ourselves stuck in. You know, you don't have to champion one thing at all cost. You don't have to get behind one sector alone to be the champion for that sector. I think we would be a lot stronger if we just admitted quite openly that we have not done a good job of diversifying. Mm -hmm. And it's not time to diversify, it's way past time to diversify. So we can still be champions for responsible energy production. No one's arguing that. But you've got to talk about all of the other things. And if you look at the resolutions that were passed, at AUMA, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, a lot of them talked about economic diversification and doing good things that allow us to become leaders in various areas. Film production, you know, music production, there's benefits that could be available that would draw that type of talent to our province. We just didn't pay enough attention to it. So now BC and Manitoba are eating our lunch. Mm -hmm. That's not what I want. I want to have the same opportunities that those provinces have. So. We need to get better at looking at what our economy could and should look like and what talent attraction looks like. The last thing that I want to get your, your impression on or your, your opinion on, um, you may have heard there's a municipal election coming up. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to push you on, on, on where, your, where your plans are for that election because I suspect when that announcement gets made in whatever capacity it is, probably won't be on a podunk little podcast like this but um, I am curious because one of the things that we're starting to hear a lot of people express a lot of concern over is the fact that the provincial government has decided that they're going to piggyback uh, the big equalization referendum on top of the municipal elections. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concerns at all that that's going to influence or change the tone of the discussion uh, surrounding municipal elections? When we spoke with uh, economist Trevor Toome. Mm -hmm. uh, he was quite concerned that it's going to shift the conversation away from real municipal issues that, that Calgary needs to address or that Edmonton needs to address because municipalities, I mean, going with the systemic racism piece, obviously there's, there's very real issues that, that cities and municipalities need to address. Do you have any concerns that that referendum is going to distract from that conversation? Absolutely it is. The number one issue that all Calgarians should be concerned about for the next municipal election is how we fund and finance a city properly. We need a different funding model than the one that we've got from our provincial government. And frankly, the way that the federal government distills their money down to municipalities also needs a lot of work. So if you're a Calgarian that wants to make sure that your property tax dollars are being spent appropriately and that your municipal government has enough money to provide you with the services you need, your number one question should be, what are you doing in terms of a funding and financing model that allows all three orders of government to work together? It's a basic. Property taxes cannot be the sole certainty that the city has for revenue generation. It doesn't work. We've seen that it doesn't work. So what else are we going to do? 
Are we going to pile a bunch of more taxes on top of Calgarians? Okay. That's not the answer. So maybe we need to look at efficiencies and maybe we need to look at models that actually force the federal and provincial, provincial governments to trickle down the money for the things that they've offloaded onto the city. They have offloading housing responsibility to us. We're not getting fair funding for that. They have uh, offloaded responsibility for mental health onto our police service. We're not getting appropriately funded for that. But you know what's interesting? The education portion of the property tax that goes up to the province that we never see, that's not something that all Calgarians understand. So the province is fine with us collecting tax for them, but they really don't want to provide us any other funding models that are actually going to help us. But what's going to happen, as you said, the issues of the day for a municipality that's providing service to Calgarians will be ignored by a referendum that is largely a provincial and federal debate. Why would you do that to municipalities? Why would you cripple our ability to raise the issues that Calgarians need to focus on by throwing out a red herring? And the only thing I can think of is it's really easy to stir up partisanship by bringing up issues like that. Well, one would almost think that as if they, they were trying to stir up partisanship, they would also make some sort of changes to how election funding could, could potentially work and how much donors could potentially give to potentially slates of candidates. But that's, you know what? that's we just heard, speculation on my part. We heard a lot from every municipality at AUMA that they were not impressed with how the Local Elections Authorities Act was being changed. Mm. You, if you don't have a conversation with the people that you're making the changes for, you really haven't done anything collaborative. You've imposed your version of how their world should be. And frankly, I think it's interesting when you have a municipal government that needs to work with a partisan provincial government and a partisan federal government, you need to have people that can bridge those relationships working at the municipal level. Mm -hmm. If you just create another layer of partisanship, you're just going to have more people bickering with each other over political ideology. I would frankly like to get Calgarians back to work. I'd like to be able to reduce their taxes because the other orders of government are actually paying for the things they should be paying for. I'd like to be able to serve Calgarians in the way they deserve to be treated. I can't do that without collaboration from other orders of government. And that's not what we've got here. And this election, if there's a referendum, it's just another way to break us apart. And this is not the time to be breaking us apart. Okay. Is there anything else? It's been a year. I hope it isn't a year since we talk again, because um, you're one of my favorite guests to have on the show. But um, is there anything else that you'd like to convey to uh, our, our very, very, very small audience um, in, in regards to what you'd like them to know about what's going on municipally, what's going on with provincial politics, uh, anything like that? I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is this push towards supporting ideology at all costs. And I get very worried when it is abundantly clear to any observer that the actions of one individual within a government are wrong, but nobody speaks up. I think it's terrible when you've got elected representatives that are either choosing to be quiet or are being muzzled because they're not interested in the party line. I think the greatest thing that democracy stands for is that you elect people who will stand up for the people. And I have seen an overwhelming number of times people keeping their mouth shut in an elected capacity when they should be screaming about the indecencies that are taking place. I wasn't elected to keep my mouth shut. I was elected to make change happen to provide services for the residents of Ward 3, but also to make sure that the people's voice is heard. And I intend to do that. And the beauty of a municipal government that is not mired in partisanship is I can say what I need to say. How many times have I disagreed with our mayor? Too many to count? How many times have I disagreed with other members of council? Too many to count. But at the same time, I've turned around and worked with those folks on some very important files. Mm -hmm. It's that ability to collaborate, even in the face of adversity. That's the trick to a strong municipal government. And I, for one, don't want it to turn into the gong show that we're seeing at the provincial and federal level, where it's partisanship at all costs. All right. 
Would you, sir, I'll throw one more question. I'm famous. Oh, we're done. One more question. Oh, we're done. One more question. Um, but is what advice would you give voting Calgarians heading into, I mean, it's, it's very clear for, for a lot of people that the campaign has already started if it didn't start six months ago yep. uh, or longer. Um, we've seen at least one mayoral candidate step up. We've seen several municipal candidates step out. What would you suggest to the voter to be able to not get caught up in what very much looks like is going to be a very strong effort to make this municipal election, which as you said shouldn't be partisan, as partisan as possible? What should people do? I think it's inherent to people's nature to want to know if you're one way or another. Do you lean right? Do you lean left? Are you a conservative? Or are you a liberal? You know, would you vote for the UCP? Would you vote for the NDP? There's just sort of natural questions that come tripping out of people's mouths because they're so used to it. When it comes to a municipal election, I would say you have the ability to access so much information about candidates. Just spend an hour, just an hour, getting to know who the candidates in your ward are. Know where your ward is. A lot of people don't know that understand the implications of electing somebody only because of their party colors. If that person knows nothing about municipal issues, you are not going to be well served. You know, if you just want someone sitting at council, making decisions, because that individual feels that that's what the provincial or federal government would want them to do, and not really showing up to do the work on behalf of constituents, I mean, I guess you can elect that person. You're not going to be well represented. Mm -hmm. You want to elect somebody that understands how to get you the types of roads that you need in your neighborhood, how to increase the safety for your kids walking to school. Hey, how to get them to school. You know, you need to understand who your candidates are that actually understands how a municipal government works. Do your homework. Understand who will stick up for you and stand for you. And it's probably going to be the person that is leaning towards the center, that's going to be able to build the bridges that you need to get the funding in order from the federal and provincial levels. Do your homework is all I'm going to say. Do not fall for the fact that some people are going to say I'm a conservative candidate and the others are going to say I'm a progressive candidate. It shouldn't matter to you. You should ask them what they understand about the city, its finances, and how it delivers services to Calgarians. They better know that. I think we're certainly starting to see the effect of a not well-informed electorate south of the border and, and what the costs of that could potentially be. Hey, I'm not even going to pick on south of the border. We've got enough of that here. It's true. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to sit down with us on this windy Saturday uh, and, and talk about all of these issues. And uh, It's I'm, still sunny. It is. It's beautiful <laughs> out. And then we've got this wonderful scenery behind us. And I'm able to wear a t-shirt still, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> so, so thank you again, and I uh, look forward to talking soon. Thanks for having me on. One would think with the incredible number of communications people that the UCP keep on staff, so we're talking about issues managers, communications directors, uh, tour directors, talent directors, that their communications strategy would be pretty locked down. Turns out it's not quite the case. A couple of weeks ago, it came to light that UCP MLA Devinder Tour had let his domain name lapse. And somebody who's way smarter than us figured that out and then redirected it to the NDP fundraising website, which is objectively funny and really quite clever. But it also got us wondering how many other UCP MLAs and ministers haven't properly secured their domain names? It turns out more than a couple. So as of now, if you go to www.toddlowen.ca, you will be directed to the fundraising page for the Alberta Independence Party. Now, we want to be really, really clear here. We don't support Alberta Independence at the breakdown at all, but we had a bit of a method that we used to determine who would get what pages, and we'll explain that in just a sec. If you go to mohammedyassin.ca, who is the UCP MLA for Calgary North, that will take you to the fundraising page for the Alberta Liberals. If you go to www.petersing.ca, the UCP MLA for Calgary East, who's had his own share of money troubles and probably could have used a little bit of fundraising, but instead that now redirects to the Alberta party because, well, frankly, they've had some money troubles as well. 
Um, the next UCP MLA and minister that we have up is Demetrius Nicolades. Demetrius Nicolades is the UCP MLA for Calgary Bow. And if you go to that website, that now redirects to the NDP fundraising page. The way that we figured out who was going to get what was basically uh, the number of votes for parties in the last election. And the four top parties in the last election were the UC, or sorry, were the NDP, the Liberals, the Alberta Party, and the Alberta Independence Party. So we wanted to try to be fair. But we did save the best for last. Because remarkably, the director of the War Room and Minister of Energy, Sonia Savage, didn't bother to register sonyasavage.ca. Now, Sonia Savage has a long history of complaining about uh, the fact that she believes that there are all of these environmental groups like the David Suzuki Foundation or the Tides Foundation or the Pembina Institute that are trying to destroy Alberta's energy industry. Now, those theories have largely been disproven, but it's probably been a little bit hard for some of these. So if you now go to sonyasavage.ca, that will take you to the fundraising page for the Pembina Institute. You're welcome. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. We want to say another big thank you to Dr. Jody Gondek, Counselor for Ward 3, for coming out and sitting down and talking with us. We also want to extend an invitation to any other city councillor candidates to come out and sit down with us. One of the things that we want to make sure happens in the next municipal election is that we're talking about municipal issues and that we're not getting distracted by a toothless referendum that isn't going to have any effect. The conversations that Calgarians have in the next election should be about issues that affect Calgary not federal issues that a referendum isn't going to have any impact on. So if you're one of those municipal candidates, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on. We also want to say a big thank you to all of our Patreon sponsors. The reality is, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have been able to buy all those domain names that we bought, uh, and we wouldn't be able to do the kind of things that we keep trying to do with the show here. So if you enjoy the kind of content that we're creating here, please consider signing up to be one of our Patreon supporters. For just the price of a cup of one cup of coffee, um, that can go a long way to helping us to continue to do what we're doing. You can do that at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab. If you're listening to the audio version of our podcast, please consider leaving us uh, a rating and a review. And if you're not following us on all of our social media platforms, it's all at, at the Breakdown AB. Uh, please follow us. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for The Breakdown. <laughs>